You uh, want to make your way to a seat or back into the sanctuary. I want to uh, I want to start by sharing what is a common experience for like all of humanity. I, I think, at least as far as I know, and that's when someone is just they've just had a baby. And you go to visit that newborn baby for the first time, whether it's at the hospital or you go to visit that newborn baby at home, and there are mom and dad holding said baby, and and you walk in, and you look at the baby, and you look at mom and dad, and you look back at the baby, and you look back at mom and dad, and as if the world has been waiting for your proclamation, you decree Looks just like mom. Well, it's got dad's, he's got your nose, dad, but really looks just like mom, right? I mean, we, this, that's something that we do whenever there's a newborn child somewhere, as if what is most important to tired but excited mom and dad in that moment is your evaluation of whose side of the family that baby most looks like. Still do it the next time because it's just, this is what we do. But at least now you've, you've got a little frame of reference for what you're doing when you do it. Because here's the thing. The world, and uh, when I say the world, I mean those who are not Christian, do the same thing to followers of Jesus when they find out that you're a believer. Right? When they find out that you are someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who would identify yourself as a Christian, whether it's a fair evaluation or not, whether it's based on a complete set of data about you and your life and activity and about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, whether either of those things are true, what happens is they, they see you and they look at you and they start trying to find family resemblance. Does this person or does this person not actually resemble Jesus Christ. And then whether it's just simply in their heart and mind or maybe even out loud or with more prominent figures, people will do this on social media, they'll go ahead and issue their their decree. And typically it's negative. Most regularly, no one who's not a believer is going to really espouse the wonderful character of a follower of Christ. They're looking for the opportunity to say that person looks nothing like Jesus. That person is nothing like the family, if you will. It happens all the time. And now I would venture to guess that in most cases, the person who's making that statement probably doesn't know all about your life and your character and what the day in and day out following of Jesus looks like for you. They probably also aren't operating with a complete understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. But nonetheless, they make that declaration. And what I want to do this morning, and actually it's going to be the first of uh, four weeks, this week and three more, uh, is to unpack what does it actually look like to be a follower of Jesus who seeks to bear the image of Christ in the world. 
If you've been with us over the course of this year, we've been working our way through Romans to talk about what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ who is gospel-centered, who builds their life on the gospel. And as we were doing that, we took a break at one point in order to to talk about being mission-driven, that a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is driven by the mission of God to make the character of God, the gospel, known throughout all of the earth. And we're going to take a break here now to talk about what does it mean to be pursuing holiness, because that's something of what it is to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And in the same way that when we talked about being mission-driven, we did like a what, why, and how, we're going to do the same thing here with pursuing holiness. And so this morning, what we're going to talk about is what exactly we mean when we say that a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is someone who pursues holiness. The goal this morning and over the next four weeks is to define that and get clarity on what the Bible has to say about holiness in the life of a believer. And so this morning, we're just going to deal with what. Next week, Kurt is going to talk about why, and then we'll spend two weeks talking about how that actually plays itself out. But in order to talk about the what, uh, I want to do a few things. I want to walk our way through kind of the theme of holiness in the Bible, beginning with just some simple definitions and then working through the Old Testament and the New Testament and then seeing how we arrived at this place in Romans. And then on the backside of that, where I want us to really spend a good chunk of time is on clarifying some misconceptions about what it means to to be pursuing holiness. So let's start with a definition. Pursuing holiness is the act of beholding and becoming the image of Christ in a broken world and in doing so in such a way that we testify to the glory and grace of God. Now, this idea of holiness, being like the image of Jesus, is something that initiates in God's character and then runs itself throughout all of Scripture. In fact, Kevin DeYoung says this, you can't make sense of the Bible without understanding that God is holy and that this holy God is intent on making a holy people to live with him forever in a holy heaven. Holiness begins in the character of God. Theologians have various ways that they describe this. Wayne Grudem says God's holiness is the idea that he is separate from sin and devoted to his glory and honor. John Frame says that God's holiness is his radical difference from human beings, which arouses awe and amazement. I want to give as kind of simple a definition of God's holiness and then our holiness as I possibly can. And so it has three sort of dimensions to it, if you will. God's holiness holiness is spatial. It has this connotation of distance or difference. And in the case of God, he is separate from us. In fact, one way to translate the word holy is other. He is completely other from who we are. We are sinful and broken. He is this other thing entirely. He is righteous and just and whole and holy. There's separation. It's spatial. God's holiness is purposeful. The Nature of God's holiness is such that he is creating for himself glory and honor. God's holiness is relational in that it has an effect on us as human beings. And that is that it is to arouse or create awe and wonder and worship within us. And now holiness in the life of believer, in the life of a believer, you could apply the same three things. It is to be spatial. But our separation there isn't about us and God. It's about the follower of Christ and the non-following of Jesus' world. That there is a difference, a separation due to the fact that a follower of Christ looks and lives one way and someone who doesn't follow Christ looks and lives another way. 
It's purposeful. And it's not that it creates glory and honor for ourselves. It would be that it creates glory and honor for the Lord. And it is relational in that it creates awe and wonder and worship in the world around us. In fact, what I want to do this morning is start in Genesis 1. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip open to there. And I just want to trace this through the kind of the, the narrative of the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis 1, 26, we're told this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. The word image appears three times there. God creates Adam and Eve in his image, and then he lives with them in the garden. They were to bear the image of God among all of creation and enjoy this soul-satisfying relationship with God. I mean, you read this and you almost can't imagine what it would have been like to have not seen and beholded God in scripture or in nature or in all of the other ways that today we see and behold God, but instead you could literally physically see him in the garden. Behold him and look at him. The ease it would seem of living out of that relationship compared to what it is to live in relationship with God and try to bear his image today. Seems, I mean, they seem like two totally separate things. And yet, if you flip over to Genesis 3, this is what happens. The second half of verse 1. He, the serpent, said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die said the serpent to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Serpent, Satan, says to the woman, you can escape all of this. You can be your own boss. You can have independence. You can define your own truth. You can become all-knowing. You can keep the glory for yourself. You can be like God, and the irony of the entire situation is that they already were created in his image. Not like him in every way, but bearing his image in such a manner that they make the character and the glory of God known to all of creation. And the serpent says, you could have more of that. And what happens in that first sin is that they become less like him. The image of God in them is not erased but it is marred. It is not destroyed, but it has, been, uh, it has been broken inside of them. And so by eating that fruit, sin enters the world. And yet God's desire does not change, that there would be these people who live in soul-satisfying relationship with him, who behold and become his image in the world and make his glory known throughout all of creation. And so in the story of the Exodus, not just the book of Exodus, but the story of the Israelites being saved from Egypt. God repeatedly asks Pharaoh to let the Israelites go that they might do what? Worship him. Behold him. See him. Right? 
And so he powerfully saves them from their slavery and he leads them to Mount Sinai. And here are these people who are to worship God out there in this wilderness. They've just been redeemed by him and they are going to bear his image, be his people in order that God might make himself known to sinful humanity, to the ends of creation through these people. And he gives them the 10 commandments and he says, here's how you can do it. Redemption came before the regulations. Grace came before the law, but the law certainly does come because once they're redeemed and they're out in the wilderness and no longer in danger from Pharaoh and his army, the Lord gives the Israelites an exhaustive law. It starts with the Ten Commandments, but it continues through Leviticus and through Deuteronomy, and there are all of these moral and civil and ceremonial laws that are to govern and guide the way that they live. Why? In order to make the Israelites a people whose holiness, whose separateness, has a purpose, that it would glorify and honor the Lord and has this impact that the image of God would be bore into all of creation. People would see it and they would, there would be this awe and wonder and worship. Kevin DeYoung continues on in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, and says this, the whole system of Israel's worship revolves around holiness. That's why you have a holy people with holy clothes in a holy land at a holy place using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by a holy law so that they might become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Geared toward helping a sinful and broken world see and glorify a holy and righteous God. And so they're led into this promised land. God gives them a clear command. Clear it out of all the false gods and the people who worship them. Why? So that the land would be holy. And so that they don't behold the wrong thing. There's a truism in life, and that's that you become like what you behold. I become like what I behold. And the entire story of the Israelites in Canaan can be summed up with the following statement. They were beholding the wrong images, and therefore being and becoming the wrong images. They don't eliminate these false gods and these false worship practices from in the land. And so they end up worshiping them, beholding them. And their lives look indistinguishable from the lives of the people that live there in the promised land in Canaan with them. And because of that, in judgment for their continual idolatry and sin, they're exiled. God brings judgment upon them and they're sent from the promised land. God called the Israelites to bear his image to be this holy nation in such a way that all of creation would see the glory and the honor of the Lord. Their holiness was to be an image, a representation of his holiness in the world. That image was marred at the fall and it's marred and broken in us today. And yet, when Christ comes, something amazing happens. If you've got your Bible open or you're on an app or something, flip to Colossians chapter one in the New Testament. Look at the way Colossians describes Christ. The whole passage beginning in Colossians 1, 15 down uh, to verse 20 is beautiful description of Jesus, but it begins in a critical place. He is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Down to verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's as though God says, you need something that shows you perfectly what it is to bear the image of God in the world. And he'll do it in a way you simply could not. And he will die as though he had lived just like you. And by faith in him, you can be brought into him. That's what we've been talking about in Romans. By faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you're brought into that perfectly bared image. In Christ, we see what it is to bear the image of God perfectly. He is perfect and glorious and his holiness is undiminished and unblemished and unfading. I'm gonna walk through Romans and just kind of show why it is that we've paused here to talk about this topic. Romans 1, verse 1, all the way down to Romans 3, verse 20 is all about sin. It's this unbelievable description of the way the image of God is broken within humanity. And if you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 22, it says this, that claiming to be wise, they, that's humanity, became fools. What did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. They started beholding something else. And by doing so, they became something else in the world. We looked at and served and worshipped the wrong thing and we became like them. But, Romans 3.21, praise the Lord, God has not left us in that place. Because now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no distinction. Anyone can place their faith in the perfect image bearer of God and receive God's grace and thus be saved from their sin. Romans 4, the whole chapter, is all about the fact that this is by grace alone through faith alone. And Romans 5 is this unbelievable truism that because of that grace and through your faith, you've been moved out from under the imperfect image bearing of Adam and you've been not only brought under but into the perfect image bearing of Jesus Christ. That's what happened at your salvation. And then Paul makes his first command in verse six or in chapter six. Consider that truth and then live as though it is reality in your life. The most amazing thing has happened to you by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. You've got this new status. You've been given new life. You've been brought into Christ. Live like it. It should be impossible for you to continue in sin because you've got union with Christ. It is illogical for you to continue in sin because you've got a new master. It's no longer your flesh and your sin. Your new master is Jesus Christ. And he has powerfully, not only granted you forgiveness, but he has brought power into your life to raise you from dead to alive in Jesus Christ. 
Paul says, live like that's the truth. In all of this, before we even really dive into breaking down what pursuing holiness is, we've got to see that this begins in a place of being gospel-centered. The reason we were mission-driven, we are mission-driven as devoted followers of Jesus Christ is because we're centered on the gospel. The reason we would pursue holiness as devoted followers of Jesus Christ is because we're centered on the gospel. You don't put either one of those things first. You're not mission-driven and thus you get saved. You're not pursuing holiness and thus you get saved. You understand the gospel and you see the beauty of it and you accept God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and then you are mission-driven and then you pursue holiness. Here's the truth about holiness in the life of a believer. Entirely because of Christ, our holiness is positional, it's progressive, and it will be perfected. The positional and the perfected were done to you. Your positional holiness happened to you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? If you remember from the week we worked our way through Romans 3, 21 to 31, you have been righteous by the righteous one. That's what's, that's what's happened. You have been holied by the Holy One. You placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You received the grace of God. You were saved, and now you're standing in Adam rather than, or now you're standing in Christ rather than in Adam. The space has been closed. You can stand in the presence of the Lord. Positionally, you are holy. His righteousness covers you. His holiness covers you. And it will be perfected one day. You will get a new resurrected body and you will spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no sin. Holiness will reign completely supreme. That will happen to you in the blink of an eye, we're told. And yet in between those two realities, our holiness is to be progressive or progressing. We're commanded to pursue it. You were under the full weight of God's wrath, but by grace through faith in Christ, now the full power of God has been made available to you. It has made you holy. It is making you holy and it will make you holy one day. And thus the New Testament is just littered with statements about our intentionality in pursuing holiness. There's a list of these up here. You should just, it's gonna be hard for you to write them all down, but you could take like a snapshot or something on your phone if you wanted to go back and look at these. This is not exhaustive by any means, but this is what the Bible has to say about what holiness should look like in the life of a follower of Christ. The first three are Jesus himself. He says that we're to be salt and light, that the image of God in the world is different than the world. Light pushes out darkness. Salt has all of these incredible effects. And Jesus says, you can be no other if you follow me. Matthew 5, 29, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it'd be better to go into heaven with only one of those things than to go into hell with both. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. Ephesians 4, 1 Paul in the first three chapters has laid out the beauty of the gospel and he says, therefore, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is working in you to both will and to work according to his good pleasure. Colossians 3, 8 to 10, but now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its, with its practices and put on a new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us to impurity, but to lives, or to holy lives. 1 Peter 1, 16, he pulls directly from Leviticus, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. 1 Peter 2, 9 to 11, he draws from Leviticus again and says that you Christians are to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. All of that is to happen through the process of sanctification. Sanctification is a restoration of the image of God within the person of God for the glory of God. And we are commanded to pursue that, to be active in the midst of that. The image of God is restored within the people of God for the glory of God. What I want to do for the remainder of our time here is walk through just really the what of pursuing holiness. What is it not and what is it? And so I have 10 of these statements. They're taken from what are common misconceptions about pursuing holiness. They're taken from what are oftentimes excuses that people will use to not actively work toward becoming the image of God, becoming the image of Christ. They're taken from... uh, just lies or faulty thoughts that sometimes we slip into and we don't even know that we believe them, but we live as though they're absolutely true. And so we're going to build a list up here. Uh, On one side is what pursuing holiness is not, and on the other side is what it is. And there are going to be 10 of these as we work our way down. Pursuing holiness is not legalism. It's responsive. Legalism is like this get out of jail free card that Christians want to use whenever somebody tells them to do something and we think it sounds rigid and or not fun. And so we will just lob this grenade at it and say, that's legalism, right? As if that just allows us to brush by that thing without having to give it any consideration. And so you start talking about living a life that should mirror the image of God, that should become the image of Christ in the world. And oftentimes people will say, that sounds legalistic. Legalism says that if you do A, B, C, or X, Y, Z, then you will be saved. You could no more save yourself by this act of sanctification, by pursuing holiness, than a little piece of ice could survive in a fire, right? Isaiah 64, 6 says all of our righteous acts are like polluted garments before the Lord, Pursuing holiness is not legalism, it's responsive. Pursuing holiness says, I've been brought into Christ because I have been saved, and now as I behold the image of Christ, I will become the image of Christ. It's in response to salvation, not to achieve it or earn it for ourselves. Pursuing holiness is not a contradiction, it's a compliment. Oftentimes someone will read the letters of Paul, they'll read Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? And then they'll read James. And James will say something like James 2.8, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. And someone will say, look, James is saying, I have to work at this. And so because that seems like it's in contradiction to Paul, I'm just gonna toss it out the window entirely. I'm going to accept grace by faith, and then just live however I want, because otherwise it's a contradiction, which is absolutely not true. There is no contradiction between what we've been reading in Romans about salvation by grace alone through faith alone and what we read in James. 
James and Paul want us to understand that the grace that has the power to transform us eternally also has the power to transform us temporally, and it should. We're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone, right? A tree or a flower produces fruit or a bud. The bud doesn't produce the tree or the flower. It works the other way around. Our pursuit of holiness does not save us. It doesn't create salvation for us, but our salvation does create fruit. You can see Jesus talk about that. Galatians 2 talks about that, right? It's not a contradiction. It's a compliment. Pursuing holiness is not self-help. It's transformation. Self-help is the idea of doing what you can in order to make yourself the best version of yourself. Pursuing holiness is something entirely different. Let me give an example before I go into it. You might decide one day, you know what? I'd really like to cuss less. I just, sometimes I get into a certain moment and I can't help it. I just, words just come out of my mouth, cuss words. And so you develop some strategies. You come up with a list of cuss word alternatives, right? And so now anytime you want to cuss, you use one of the alternatives rather than using the cuss word, right? A great little self-help strategy. It makes it so that your children don't hear you use swear words or whatever the case might be so that you eliminate using those. But nothing transformative has actually happened there, right? You can say, gosh, darn it, and mean the exact same thing as the other one. Self-help says, I'll just build some strategies and kind of clean up the outside of my cup, if you will. Pursuing holiness, the process of sanctification is transformative. It says this, God, I see that your word has a lot to say about my tongue and the way that I use it. And I recognize that sometimes I use my words and my tongue to do things that are contrary to what your scripture says, would you transform my heart entirely so that I desire to do something different altogether with my words? That's transformation. Something inside of you radically changes. Self-help is wonderful if you just want to stop being so angry that you don't yell at your children anymore. Transformation is necessary if you want to get to the root of the anger problem and actually replace it with something more righteous. Pursuing holiness is not self-help. Pursuing holiness is not passive. Instead, it's active, trans, or active submission. There often exists this thought that I'm just going to drift my way into Christ-likeness, as if pursuing holiness is like floating on a lazy river that happens to lead you to restoration of the image of God inside of you, right? It's like you're at Oceans of Fun, you hop on the little lazy river, you do nothing but get inside the little floaty thing, and then poof, you're on the other side of the water park, right? That's what passive is, let go and let God. I'm just gonna lock myself inside my house for four years. I'm gonna do absolutely nothing but watch Netflix. And then I'm gonna walk my way out of my house four years later and look just like Jesus Christ. There's a strain of Christianity that says, just let go and let God, just let him do what he will inside of you. And now look, you're thinking to yourself, well, Tim, God could, to which I will say, absolutely. There are people who have these amazing testimonies of a stronghold or a sin in their life and they, at their moment of conversion, at their moment of salvation, that thing removes itself entirely from their life, right? God can do that. 
I would go so far as to say that that is not normative. We praise the Lord for those moments. I mean, thank God that he can remove those kinds of temptations and sins in our lives. But the more normative pattern is that we need to actively submit. It requires effort on our part. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says that he beats his body and makes it his slave. All throughout the New Testament and 2 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Peter, we're told to be self-controlled. That's active. It requires that we do something. But here's the key. That activity is an active submission. Romans 6, that we just looked at last week even, if you just started in verse 15 and worked your way down to verse 23, the back half of Romans chapter 6, you would see that this language runs all the way through it about offering. That's an active thing. You offer yourself to the Lord. And yet at the same time, it's submissive because once you've offered yourself, you're completely at the will of the master. What he wants for you is what you're willing to have become of you. Active submission. Pursuing holiness is not passive. It's also not individual. Instead, it's relational. Many people approach sanctification as if the idea is to like hunker down all on their own and then just wrestle themselves into the image of Christ. And this is not true. There are multiple ways in which the pursuit of holiness is not individual. I've already mentioned that it's in partnership with the Lord. Like there's this active submission to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He is a key integral part of this. But much of our growth and sanctification comes through human relationship. Oftentimes, we need someone in our life, around us, to point out for us that there's a sin that exists inside of us that maybe we cannot see on our own, right? We need someone to be the Nathan to our David, to arrive and say, that that you just did is broken. Tim, that is sinful. You need to see that, right? A lot of our Pursuing holiness happens in like the grittiness of human relationships. And it's not fun and at times it hurts, right? When someone points out that there's this attitude or this behavior or this disposition that exists inside of you that is broken and contrary to the image of Christ and someone's got to point that out and it hurts. And our initial reaction is usually one of like uh, passionate, passionate disagreement. And then we need to get alone and actively submit. Is that person right? Woe is me, you know? I need to repent of this. But there's another way in which this is relational. You might be here this morning and recognize that you have a legitimate addiction that exists in your life. It could be to a substance. It could be to something like pornography. And that requires something outside of yourself as well. You might need professional help as you pursue holiness. You might need someone on the outside who says, this is what it's going to take in order for you to see freedom here. And they're able to help you put structures into place and they're able to help you put boundaries into place so that you can actively submit to the work of the Lord in your life in bringing you freedom from that thing. You might need professional help. Pursuing holiness is not individual, it's relational. Pursuing holiness is not sinlessness, it's 
growth. There is a false strain of thought that says that we can be sanctified to a place of sinless perfection, and this is not the case. I'm going to just let 1 John 1, 8 speak for itself. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. At the University of Missouri, where I went to college, there is a man who stands in a particular place all the time, and he has this method of preaching that he calls uh, confrontational evangelism, and he's trying to bring people to the Lord, but one of the things that he will regularly say is that he has not sinned in 27 years. That is a lie. Maybe you haven't outwardly done something sinful in 27 years, which I would even have a hard time wrapping my mind around, but certainly you've coveted in your heart. You've been angry in your heart. Certainly at some point there's been some sort of disposition inside of you that is wildly broken and contrary to the image of God. It's not sinless perfection, it's growth. Pursuing holiness is not outward only, but it's inside out. Right? We're not trying to just be like the Pharisees who Jesus said had an outside cup, uh, outside of the cup that was clean, but an inside that was dirty. We're not trying to be whitewashed tombs, right? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is all about the heart. That's how pursuing holiness works. By beholding the image of Christ, the work of Christ within us begins to change what happens outside of us. In fact, one of the things that happens as we grow in our Christ-likeness is that the removal of sinful behaviors on the outside makes us more and more aware of just how broken the inside is. Like as we grow in our Christ-likeness, we begin to see that externally things might look pretty good, but internally there's some darkness there. That our attitudes and our dispositions, that our thoughts are much more broken than what our outside portrays. And so Pursuing holiness is inside out. Pursuing holiness is not smooth, it's a process. What we want, especially in the life of someone else, not in our own life, is for pursuing holiness to be this like nice, smooth, upward line, right? Like on the Price is Right, the little yodeling guy that goes up the side of the mountain and it's like perfectly smooth, right? Climbing no mountain works that way. Climbing a mountain is a bunch of switchbacks. It's up in elevation and then down a little bit. And it's this long, long process that after hours, you break through the tree line and you look down and there's your car. And sometimes it felt like you were going up, but sometimes it definitely felt like you were going down or you were making no progress at all, right? Pursuing holiness is a process whereby five years or 10 years down the road, you look back and you realize just how far the Lord has brought you. But in the moment, it feels like, am I going anywhere? And we get that about ourselves, but we have a hard time extending that grace to other people. That there's a process happening. Thabiti Anyabwile, he's a pastor. He says, most of God's most powerful work in the life of a believer happens in totally unspectacular ways. Oftentimes invisible, oftentimes over years or seasons of life. Pursuing holiness is not neutral. It is vivifying. Vivifying is a $10 word. Let me define it because I could come up with no better word to encapsulate this truth. Pursuing holiness is not merely the act of eliminating bad stuff in your life in order to arrive at a place of moral neutrality. There is more to pursuing holiness than that. Sanctification works both in mortification, so like the killing of sin within you, and also in vivification which is the enabling and empowering of righteousness within us. The goal of our pursuit of holiness and our growth in Christ-likeness is not to arrive at a place where we simply don't do bad or sinful things. It's to have the life of Christ enlivened inside of us, 
brought to life within us so that the model of Jesus flows out of us in all of its love and compassion and positive righteousness. James 4, 17 says, so it is sin to know good and yet not to do it. Pursuing holiness is knowing good and doing it. It's vivifying, not just neutral or not just mortifying. And then last but not least, pursuing holiness is not proud, it is humble. Ultimately, your growth and sanctification is not about you. It's about God. The purpose of Adam and Eve bearing the image of God was in order to make the goodness of God resound to the very ends of his creation. And the restoration of that image within you and me, within all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, is for that same purpose. It's to make known, to display, to portray the character and love and glory and beauty of God among all creation. It's not so that someone looks at you and says, wow, look at how holy that person is. It's so that someone looks at you and says, wow, look at the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Look at the transforming power of the gospel. We'll come back to this verse Uh, down the road here, especially in the last couple of weeks. But I want to leave us this morning with 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Jot it down and you can go back and look at it. It so wonderfully encapsulates these 10 things. Here's what it says. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. But these he has given us at very great... By these, he has given us a very great and precious promise so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has given you everything that's required for godliness so that we might make every effort to supplement our faith with the image of Jesus Christ living in and through us. Why? So that we might not be unfruitful or ineffective in bearing his image in the world. That's what it is to pursue holiness. To behold and become the image of God in a broken world so that they might see his glory and his honor and just be in awe and wonder of who he is. And then, if we're mission-driven, we share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is so beautiful and compelling that it would be hard for one to walk away from. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and uh, worship the God who is powerful enough to not only save but also to transform.